verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 on the next day. Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Several years back, Death Valley in California, recognized for hot, arid climate, experienced a rare surge of life. And so photographers were flocking to the region to capture the beauty of this, what's called super bloom. Park rangers say that this kind of super bloom in the desert only happens like once a decade. So it's a very special moment. One park ranger said, Death Valley really goes from being a valley of death to a valley of life. When you hear the word salvation, what do you think of? 
for some people, that word only speaks of a, of a spiritual realm or a spiritual experience. For others, that word refers to a, a special moment in time when kind of the eyes open and you see God and you see Christ and you see his kingdom. For others, and I would say for many, that word really is something that concerns ultimately the future. The Bible speaks very differently about salvation. The Bible speaks of salvation as a super bloom in the desert. Some of the misconceptions or short-sighted views of salvation, to use that desert analogy, is sometimes I think we view salvation almost as the ticket that gets us out of Death Valley one day, or the ticket that gets us out of this harsh, broken situation. And yet the Bible speaks of salvation as a flourishing life, holistically, spiritually, emotionally, in the physical realm, all of life flourishing, not just in the future one day, but right now in a broken world. So the question is, based on all the different versions or understandings of salvation that we have, what is the kind of salvation that's offered to you in Christ? What's the kind of salvation that is offered to you in Christ? First, it's a salvation that is unique. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says salvation only comes through Jesus. And then he gives very helpful imagery of that in verse 11, which is a quote from Psalm 118. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That word cornerstone means head of the corner. It refers to that stone at the top of an angled wall that basically binds the top of the wall together or holds the wall up. Could even refer to a stone at the top of an arch. That if that stone is not there, the wall crumbles. That stone is holding the structure up. And so Peter says with salvation, Jesus Christ is the one who holds salvation together. Without Christ, salvation crumbles. It actually is non-existent. Now, this is a claim that's viewed as very offensive in our culture. If Peter would have said that Jesus is one of the ways to God, there are multiple ways. We have chosen our way, but maybe there's a way for you. Then there would have been no offense. They wouldn't have gotten arrested. No offense, everything would be fine. What I want you to see is, as offensive as that claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father today, as offensive as it is in our culture today, it was just as, maybe even more offensive in the first century. Here's why. 
the early church, the early Christians lived underneath the rule of Rome. The Roman government established the laws of the land. And Rome created a society of pluralism because they would conquer all of these peoples and nations and groups, and everyone they would conquer had their own gods. So they conquered the Ephesians, and, and the Ephesians have the, the God of the Ephesians, and, and the Jews had the God of the Jews, and the Egyptians had their own gods. And so Rome's approach was to allow everyone to bring their gods in and to worship their gods. But Roman historians will say one of the things that was absolutely not allowed was for anyone to say that their God was supreme or that their God was the one God over all gods. Now, you say, that's great, but Peter and John aren't standing before the Roman authorities. And that is true. We see Verse one, they're standing before the Jewish authorities in the temple, specifically before the Sadducees. The Sadducees dominated the power structure and the ruling structure of the temple in Jerusalem. They were the power players. They were basically second in charge beneath the Roman authorities. And so for them to stay in power, in this Roman society, they had to appease the Roman authorities, which means they had to play along with the pluralism of the day, which was to make no absolute claims that there was any supreme God. This explains why they were so disturbed by Peter and John. In verse two, and it explains why they arrested him. Verse two, the Sadducees were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John were proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, but what Peter and John were saying and what the Sadducees understood they were saying was Jesus rose from the dead and he is the supreme God over all gods. And so the Sadducees, to try to keep the peace in the culture underneath Rome, had to quiet this down, and that's why they arrested Peter and John. One of the objections to the claim that there's one way to God, that there's not many gods or that there's not multiple ways to God, one of the objections to that claim is that, it, that it's arrogant. It's arrogant. How, how, how can we say that we have superior knowledge, that we have the superior vantage point over everyone else? And the argument goes something like, if we could just be humble, recognize we're not smart enough to know everything. And if we could just understand that everybody's view is equal to ours, everything would be okay. One of the ways this is described often is in a, in a parable, it was told I'll get to it with one of the missionaries in India who heard this parable over and over, but it's this parable. Three blind men were asked to describe an elephant, and each blind person went up to the elephant and touched different parts of the elephant. So one blind man went up to the body of the elephant and touched it and said, it feels like a wall. And then, and then another blind man walked up and, and touched the, uh, the trunk of the elephant and said, it feels like a snake. And another blind man walked up and touched the tusk of the elephant and said, it feels like a spear. 
And the, the moral of the story is that no one person could have the whole picture and that, that every person's view fills out the whole picture. And so, according to the parable, so too is it with religion, that no one religion has the whole picture. Now, Leslie Newbegin, he was a missionary in India for many, many years. And this parable, he heard this parable told over and over. And, and he, at, at first glance, it seems very reasonable. But then he realized to be able to tell that story, you have to be able to see the whole elephant, right? That to be able to make the claim that the, the blind men only see part of the elephant, you have to be able to see the whole elephant and not be blind. And his point was, you, at that point, you're doing the very thing that you're asking everyone else not to do, which is to claim you can see the whole picture. The point is this. If it's arrogant to say there's one way to God, then it's arrogant to say there are many ways to God. Peter was not being arrogant here. In fact, he says it. All he was doing was just sharing and speaking of what he had seen and heard. Right? Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So Peter's not saying, hey, I'm superior. I've got superior knowledge over you. He's simply saying this is what. We saw, we've seen and heard. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We saw him. He spoke this to us, and now we're sharing it with you. Peter and John are saying, we're sticking with him. We're taking him at his word. And that's the decision that you have to make. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Because he himself says, in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is unique in Christ. But second, what kind of salvation is offered to you in Christ? One that is unique, but second, a salvation that is disruptive. Salvation that is disruptive. What do I mean by that? Well, first, consider the people that are interrogating Peter and John. In the first six verses of this chapter, you have 11 different individuals or categories of individuals that line up to interrogate Peter and John. And they are the power players of the day. You have in this group, you have priests, you have the captain of the temple, which was basically the temple police, so the police captain of the temple. You had the Sadducees, who I've already said were the lay rulers of the day in Jerusalem. You had Annas, the ex-high priest. You had Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the reigning high priest. Annas and Caiaphas, not, not but weeks earlier, had been instrumental in the condemnation and arrest of Jesus himself. So these very powerful people of the day, right below the Roman authorities, power players of the day, pull Peter and John in and ask, verse seven, and when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
And Peter answers that this is the healing of the man who had been lame since birth. Peter answers and says, by the name, meaning, name means authority or power. By the authority and power of Jesus, this man was healed. The man you crucified, Jesus, and the man that God raised from the dead. Then he goes on to say, there's no other name under heaven by which men are saved. Now, how do Annas and Caiaphas respond to this and all the others that are gathered? Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Uneducated doesn't mean stupid. It just means that they hadn't gone through the rabbinical training school that all these priests had gone through. Modern day equivalent would be they're not seminary trained. Common just means lay people. Again, they're not the formal ordained priests that had gone through rabbinical school. They're, they're just lay people. Modern day would be someone not in vocational ministry, right? not pastors. That's what uneducated and common means. What they were experiencing here, what these rulers were experiencing was Jesus 2.0. They were speaking, Peter and John, with the same authority that Jesus had spoke. I mean, they're having deja vu just weeks earlier. In fact, they had a similar response to Jesus. John chapter seven, verse 15 says, the Jews therefore marveled. They were astonished saying, how is it that this man has learning but has never studied, right? So with Jesus, how is he know, he's so wise and seems to know so much without having gone through our rabbinical schools. They were astonished. They were astonished but were unwilling to act upon what they were astonished by. They were astonished ultimately at Jesus because this was Jesus speaking through Peter and John, but they were unwilling to act upon what they were astonished by. Why? Because had they acted upon it and put their faith in Jesus and followed Jesus, it would have been costly and very disruptive. They would have lost their jobs. They would have lost their paycheck. They would have lost their place of power. They would have lost their worldly prestige. They would have lost their reputation. So they were astonished, but unwilling to act upon what they were astonished by. Lord Kenneth Clark, internationally known for his BBC television series, Civilization, lived and died without faith in Jesus Christ. And yet in his autobiography, he admits to visiting a beautiful church one time and having what he called was a very profound religious experience. In fact, he, he wrote in his autobiography during this experience in this church, he said, my whole being was irradiated by a kind of heavenly joy far more intense than anything I had known before. But this flood of grace, as he would describe, created a problem. 
if he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew that would mean he had to change. And that maybe his family would think he had lost his mind. And that maybe that, that moment of joy was just an illusion. And so he went on to write or conclude, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. Does this describe where you're at? Maybe you have been astonished by the grace of a Christian who has befriended you and loved you deeply. And this genuine love from this Christian has caused some of the walls and some of the negative views of Christianity to start to tear down in your heart. And maybe for the first time, because of the astonishing grace and love of this Christian, you have thought Christianity may be plausible. Or maybe you have been moved by some teaching that has stirred your heart towards Jesus. And you have seen and heard of Jesus and what he has done in a way maybe you've never heard before. And again, it has removed some of the negative stereotypes that maybe you have of Christianity. It's become plausible have you had that type of experience, but like Kenneth Clark, not allowed yourself to be influenced by it because you know it will be disruptive and you know it will mean change? Now consider Peter and John. Peter and John were astonished by Jesus and his teaching. The difference is they were astonished by it and they acted upon what they were astonished by. It changed them. It was disruptive. Right? They left their jobs. They were arrested here. As we continue to go through Acts, not only arrest, but they'll be thrown in prison. And we learn most likely that all of the apostles except for John died for their faith in Jesus died for their faith in Christ. They were astonished, and they acted upon what they were astonished by. The only explanation for the behavior of the apostles in the book of Acts, the only explanation is that they really did see the risen Christ. And they really were convinced that Jesus was alive. And they really believed that he was coming back. That's the only way you can honestly read the book of Acts and how these apostles behave themselves. It's the only way you can read it and say, okay, that's the only way I can make sense of this. Is they really did believe in the real risen Christ. Tim Keller tells the story of a relative who would never wear a seatbelt. Tells the story of this relative. Every time he talked to him, he'd get in the car, but he would never put his seatbelt on. He says the family nagged him and nagged him and nagged him to no avail. And then one time, the relative gets in the car 
and puts a seatbelt on. And the family said, what's happened? And he said, a couple weeks ago, I went to see a friend of mine in the hospital. He was in a car crash and he went through the windshield. He had like 200 stitches in his face. For some strange reason, ever since then, I've been having no problem buckling up. So Keller asked him, well, did you get new information? What changed you? Did you not know that people go through the windshield when they don't wear a seatbelt? Of course he did. Of course he knew all that. Here's what happened. An abstract proposition became connected to a sensory experience. That is something he saw. And it changed him. It disrupted his life. He put his seatbelt on now. When the risen Christ becomes real to you, then you welcome disruption and change. When the, real, the risen Christ becomes real to you, then status quo no longer controls your life. Salvation is unique in Jesus, and salvation is disruptive in Jesus. But you say, well, what about this disruption? Third, salvation is healing. So yes, it's unique. Yes, it's disruptive. But the kind of salvation that is offered to you in Christ is a salvation that is healing. It's healing. There's a very interesting dynamic in this encounter in Acts 4 between the Jewish authorities and between Peter and John. The people with the most power in this encounter, the most worldly power, the Jewish authorities, are the most fearful. The people with the most worldly power are the people that are most afraid. If the message of the risen Christ continues to spread, then these Jewish authorities lose control and they lose their power. So what do they resort to? Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then Peter and John respond in verse 19. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so when that didn't work, just telling them to be quiet, then what did they turn to? Well, then they resorted to threats. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them. What we're gonna see in the ensuing chapters is that the stop talking about Jesus turns into threats, turns into physical harm, ultimately turns into death, killing. They continue to ratchet up their control. Gripped by the fear of losing control, they became less human and less humane in their treatment of others. And this is the story of humanity, going back to the very beginning. 
This is the story of our first parents who were living underneath the life-giving authority of God. They were submitted to it. But then they chose to reject God's leadership and authority over them and to take control of their lives in Genesis 3, and it was nothing but a tragic fall from that point on. Do you know what the first emotion is that's recorded after our first parents took control of their lives and no longer submitted themselves to God's loving authority? Do you know what the first emotion recorded is? It's fear in Genesis 3. They were afraid. The more you functionally believe that you are in control, that you have power and that you are in control, the more anxiety and fear that you will experience. The more you believe you're in control, the more fear and anxiety you will experience. We see this playing out with the Jewish authorities and we see it actually play out in the life of Peter. Consider Peter's life. The last time he was in the presence of Caiaphas, the high priest, was when Jesus was brought to Caiaphas' house for questioning, with Peter following closely behind. Peter was at Caiaphas' house as Jesus was being questioned, and a, and a slave girl noticed Peter and said to all those gathered around, this man was with Jesus. And how did Peter respond? He cowered in fear before a slave girl and said, no, I don't know him. Peter in the flesh, meaning Peter living out of his own resources, Peter functionally in control, cowers in fear before a slave girl and denies Jesus. Now we see Peter again in Caiaphas' presence, but now Peter in Acts 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, as verse 8 says, proclaimed Jesus to the man who had weeks earlier been instrumental in killing Jesus. Peter was filled with this boldness. When Peter was living out of the resources of self and functionally in control, he was gripped with fear. When Peter was living out of the rich resources of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was filled with boldness. Ultimately, life is lived in one of two ways. Life is lived under the loving control of Christ or life is lived under the control of self. When you are functionally living under the control of self, you wither. When you're functionally living under the control of Christ, you flourish. Steve Jobs, Apple's late co-founder and CEO, was a brilliant man, creative man, driven man. But he was also a man that was obsessed with control, and he expressed his obsession with control through food. He had very, very strange diets, and his obsession over control through food affected his relationships, 
affected the decisions that he made. It was all part of his desire to have this kind of superhuman control over people and his, and his, his job, and ultimately it was tied to his perfectionism. But that control expressed through food ultimately failed him. In 2003, a scan turned up a rare version of pancreatic cancer. And it was slow growing such that immediate surgery would have made it almost certainly curable. Steve Jobs' biographer wrote this. Jobs decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. I really didn't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. He told his biographer years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he kept to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrot and fresh juices for nine months as his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery. He refused. Sometime later, he finally agreed to the surgery. They removed part of his pancreas, but by that time, doctors had found that it had spread other places. He would never again be cancer-free and years later, at the age of 56, he was dead. His biographer wrote this. He was in the terminal stage, not of cancer, but of idolatry, when the idol ceases to deliver, but exacts its full demands for unwavering worship. when the public became aware of Jobs' gaunt and thin body, they just made the conclusion that the disease had come back and began to take over his body. What they didn't know was that his wasted body was not just the result ultimately of the cancer, but it was the result of his obsessive control expressed through food. Salvation brings healing because salvation removes you from the withering control of self and places you under the flourishing control of Jesus Christ. What are you attempting to control? And how is that causing debilitating anxiety and fear in you? And how is it causing you to ultimately wither? Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ and receive a unique and a disruptive but a healing salvation that he has accomplished for you through his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our obsessive attempts to control life 
believing that we have power and control that ultimately is just an illusion. Father, we confess it, but we also confess the anxiety and the fear and the withering that we're experiencing on the inside as we try to clamp down on whatever it may be that we're attempting to control. Father, there are some here that are experiencing debilitating anxiety and fear. Oh, Father, would you turn our hearts and our eyes to your son, Jesus? And would we experience the flourishing that comes underneath his loving control, that we would submit Jesus, to your love, your control, your authority, your power, and that we would find boldness and joy in the midst of our broken lives in this broken world. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising for us. And thank you for your promise that you're coming back. We can't see you but through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, would you make Jesus real to us? Not just an abstract concept, but a real risen person in a glorified body that would bring welcome disruption and change to our lives so that we could flourish. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.